0: David, A Man After God's Own Heart, Part 12. And the title of our message this morning, Rising to the Top, based on 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Now, you would have seen that news outlets are covered with stories of the sad events that are developing in Afghanistan. And it is a tragedy on so many levels. This is after... It is a tragedy because... So many lives have already been lost. Trillions of dollars have been spent and and so much sacrifice and effort over the last 20 years. And all of this was done with, with with a dream of building a prosperous and free society. But now everybody is asking, was it worth it? Because on the surface at least, It appears that it has almost uh, all that effort has come to nothing, and I suppose it's easy to look over there and see all the troubles. But before we look too far, let's accept that in our society, I'm being generous when I say that we haven't got it all together either. Now, in his commentary on 2 Samuel, John Woodhouse asks the broader questions in this regard. Why is it that human beings have never been able to build a society that is all we would like it to be? Why have we never been able to build communities that are completely secure, prosperous, peaceful and joyful? And the simple answer, he says, is that we are not good enough, wise enough or strong enough to do so. We're not good enough because human wickedness undermines every group of people in every way. The Bible calls it sin. We're not wise enough. Our foolishness means that we are constantly making mistakes. Decisions are made, you see, with with good intentions, but then end up having terrible unintended consequences. And what is happening in Afghanistan is, is a He's a good example of that. And we are not strong enough. For all the wonders and advancements of developments and progress over the last centuries, human beings face challenges and difficulties that are simply beyond human solutions. Now, any reading of the Old Testament will tell you that the people of Israel had a checkered past. But there was a time under King David, we we got a, a close glimpse of what the kingdom of God was like. That is, David was God's king over God's people. He was certainly not the full or perfect expression of God's king over God's kingdom. That only came into the world with his descendant, Jesus Christ. And it will always culminate when he returns. Now last week we saw how after many years of struggle, David was finally declared king at Hebron. And yes, it was a humble start as he was only recognised as king over one tribe, the tribe of Judah. Now he tried to reach other people and reach out to the people of the north, but they chose to follow Saul's son Ishbosheth instead. The final episode, of course, is that uh, there was a long struggle between the house of David and the house of Saul, and all of this uh, came to an end when Ishbosheth was assassinated by two of his own men. If you, you can read about that in the, in the uh, chapters uh, three, four uh, of two Samuel. Now this morning we're going to move away from Sa- from Samuel and we're going to jump all the way to to Chronicles that has a parallel passage to the reading in Samuel. Now we'll ask you to join us in one Chronicles chapter eleven, and we're going to first of all our uh, first. Title uh, subtitle this morning is On the Throne from verses 1 to 3. Now all Israel came together to David at Hebron and said we are your own flesh and blood in the past even while Saul was king you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns and the Lord your God said to you you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler and when all the elders Of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel as the Lord had promised through Samuel. So after seven years at Hebron, the tribes of the north come to David and make him the king also. He made he made them their king. Now, if you look back, this was actually David's third anointing. Remember that the first one was when, in front of his own family, when Samuel turned up to Bethlehem, when David was very young. That was the first anointing. The second anointing was over the tribe of Judah at, at, at Hebron, and now once more at Hebron after the death of Saul's descendant, Ishbosheth. Now, so this is the third anointing of King David. It is sad, it is sad that these tribes only turned to David when their previous choice, that is Saul's son, Ishbosheth, was taken away from them. In the same way, isn't it sad when Christians only recognise Jesus as king when all their other choices crumble and come to nothing? The challenge for us is to choose Jesus first time every time. Not just when all the other options fail. We should come to him in prayer all the time, first time. Not just when we've tried everything else and we've got no other choices. Okay, I'll come to, I suppose I'll now have to come to the Lord in prayer and ask him. No. Jesus, our Lord, should be first and foremost in everything. So they come to David and received his leadership because as they said, he was an Israelite himself. They say they said to him, "We are your own flesh and blood." Now this is significant because for a period of time, David lived, as we recall, he lived he lived in Philistine territory as a Philistine. Now the elders of Israel put all that away and embrace David as one of their own, and they declare him as king. Now that is quite significant. And then on the hill, verses 4 to 8, David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and the Jebusites who lived there said to David, you will not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. David had said, whoever leads the attack on the Jebusites will become commander-in-chief. So Joab, son of Zeruiah, went up first, and so he received the command. David then took up residence in the fortress and so it was called the city of David. And he built up the city around it from the terraces to the surrounding wall while Joab restored the rest of the city. Now that David occupied the highest office, the highest political office in the land, he obviously needed a palace, somewhere to reign from. And the location of this place was important because it needed to be politically neutral with no tribal association. Otherwise the tribes will start fighting over one another over privileges and all that. So it had to be strategic also in the centre of the kingdom in order to, to bring together all of the different tribes. And also it had to be secure easy to defend and this is why as a, location, as a location Jerusalem ticked all the boxes it was a small Canaanite city in the centre of Israel it was a pocket of resistance surrounded by Israelites and yet this, this one hill Jerusalem was there This this land was occupied by the Jebusites and and promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, some 900 years uh, earlier. And now, uh, some 400 years before, God commanded Israel to take the whole of the promised land. But despite all that, this city still remained in Canaanite hands. And why was that? Well, it's because it was in this strategic location on top of a hill and it was a very difficult place to conquer. It had natural defences with rocks and valleys, everything right around it. It was basically a natural fortress. And because of this, the Jebusites over many years grew cocky and overconfident over their their ability to defend themselves against any aggressor and, and the way that in Samuel it is portrayed, they actually made, made fun of, of, of David and his army. So they started mocking David and his troops but despite the difficulty, David and his men took the city. And this is how Jerusalem became the capital city of David's kingdom. And, of course, Jerusalem is a big name, as big as it gets, isn't it? From this moment forever, it will be known as Zion, the city of God. The sons of Korah, sung in Psalm 48. Psalm 48, verses 1 to 3, and this is in the Good News Version. The Lord is great and is to be highly praised in the city of our God, on his sacred hill. Zion, the mountain of God, is high and beautiful. The city of the great king brings joy to all the world. God has shown that there is safety within him, inside the fortresses of the city. So David is king. He's on top. Now he's got a place, a place to live in. He's got his, uh, his palace, king, a palace. And we have to ask ourselves, how did he get there? How did he get to the top? And I want to concentrate on, two, on three verses, in verses 9 to 11, the, the, the way to greatness. And we read this in verse 9, 10, and 11. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. And these were the chiefs of David's mighty warriors. They, together with all Israel, gave his kinship strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had promised. And this is the list of David's mighty warriors. First of all, how did he get there? And the answer is he got there. It's, it says here and David became more and more powerful. Finally, David achieved greatness. But as we know, he was by no means an overnight success. No one could see the greatness in the boy when he was a shepherd out in the fields. Not his family, not Samuel, not even David himself. Only God could see this day, could see the greatness. At the same time, no one would appreciate the hidden cost of greatness. This is because those who become great among God's people, they know that they will experience much pain and difficulty in God's School, God's training process. Now, if I was there, if I was there next to David on the day of his enthronement over all of Israel, I would have said to him, you know, David, you did it. You finally did it. How does it feel? Of course, We are privileged that we have his whole history. And uh, a lot of his his thoughts and feelings and and, and all of that, we, we get to see it. We are privileged to see it in the Psalms that he wrote about what it was like. Just think about the years of waiting for God's promise to come true in his life. The years wandering from place to place, being persecuted by Saul. Uh, the incredible pressure of having to provide for his 600 men and their families and the whole entourage, while constantly on the run from cave to cave, from place to place, and then uh, the self-control that, that was that was needed to to set the best example for when he did assume the throne. And all the narrow escapes when it all could have easily come to nothing and fallen apart. Through all of this, he did not give up. This is why I'm saying he, he got there. Now this is a quote from one of Chuck Swindoll's books. And I'll, and I'll quote, he says, Press on. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are important. Let's move a little bit closer to the Bible and and see what the Apostle Paul said on the subject. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. That is the Apostle Paul's version of persistence and consistence. So he got there. But as we know, there is another element, which I, I, I'll, give you this, I'll share with you this, this anecdote, this story. Alex Haley, um, an American, is the famed author of, of Roots. He had an unusual picture hanging on his uh, office wall. And the picture was of a turtle sitting on top of a fence post. And when friends uh, ask about the picture, Haley would tell them, and 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 I quote, he says, every time I write something significant, every time I read my words and think that they are wonderful and begin to feel proud of myself, I look at the turtle on top of the fence post and remember that he didn't get there on his own. He had help. Just this past week, I um, I read an article, uh, some pictures as well, of Ash Barty, the the world number one women's tennis player, the Australian. And uh, people are starting to fall in love with Ash Barty because of, not just because she's winning, but because of her character as well. Just as she was about to receive her her prize as as the champion in, in in a tennis tournament, she signalled to her crew, her crew who were sitting on the stands, and and she said to them, come down here, come down here. And so as they were taking photos, she made sure that they were all included because even though tennis is an individual sport, she recognises more than anyone that it is a team effort. And she made sure that everybody knew and that the world knew that this was the case in her life. Which leads us to our second point. His men put him there. And this is what we, what we read. Uh, they, that's his men, they, they gave his kingship, strong support it says, to extend it over the whole land. It's important to understand that David was nothing without his mighty men and they were nothing without him. No leaders can accomplish anything by themselves. A a leader is nothing without followers. If if you think you're a leader, look back and see who's following, because if no one's following, then you're not a leader. Remember how these men started. They they didn't start off as, as mighty men, In 1 Samuel 22, we we read that they were distressed, they were indebted, they were were discontented people who who came to David at the cave of Adullam. Amongst these mighty warriors, David had his special three warriors amongst the, the, the other 30. And one of these mighty men was... Uriah the Hittite. Sadly, he is the one that I think paid the dearest price for his loyalty to David. You see, his wife was Bathsheba. And when David found this out, adultery should have been the last thing on his mind. And, and David and Bathsheba, we're going to look at that story later on in our series but as we know, that would become the lowest point in his incredible life. But Just looking at the, at the rest of his mighty warriors, they, the, these remarkable men were, like I said, the, the, the foundation of, of the greatness in David's reign. And here, I will share with you one story here, just one example of their exploits. While David was hiding in the cave of, of Adulum, David nostalgically remembered the taste of the water from his boyhood village back in Bethlehem and uh, the story is told also in, in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and it was harvest time, the weather was hot David was thirsty perhaps where he was the water was scarce so so David began dreaming of the cold wells of Bethlehem and and he, he casually mentioned how he, he wished he could, he could taste those waters again. And some of these men who were close to him, they overheard him just say it out loud. Now, you would know, those of you who are around my age or, or even older, that as we get older, it is easy to fall into, into these nostalgic traps usually happens when we compare our difficult present circumstances experiences with with some happier some happier times some happier moments in some other place in some other time what we're doing is we're desiring to drink again the waters of a simpler life perhaps an innocent childhood Perhaps the the, the moment when the whole family was together before they grew up and left home. But as they say, the past is a good place to visit but a terrible place to live in. Here and now within us, Jesus is waiting to open the well of living water which springs up to eternal life. And he's constantly available to us. That is his promise. So we should look to him now with confidence for the future ahead of us instead of dreaming about a past to which we can never return to. So three of these men, Eliezer, Abishai and Benaiah, discussed about getting this water for their boss. And they daringly snuck behind enemy lines to to to, to grant a, a wish for their leader. Incredible act of, of bravery, right? For something that appears to be so insignificant, and yet they did it. And when they returned, David was was beside himself. He was so honored by their self-sacrifice. That he couldn't actually bring himself to drink the water. So, what he did is he poured it out before the Lord. Now, to those of you who might want to preach, uh, I'll give you three points for your sermon on this story. And, and, and here are the three points. It highlights, this, the first point is that it highlights a great act of bravery for these men. Secondly it displays David's ability to inspire as a leader to inspire extraordinary loyalty. And thirdly this was recognized as an act of worship before the Lord. What an amazing story, right? Which leads us to our our final point this morning. How did he get there? How did he get to the top? God called him there. And this is what we read. Because the Lord Almighty was with him. And and this is the ultimate reason why he was king. Because of God. As as, as we said last week, David becoming king over Judah was was not a a matter of personal pursuit or, or ambition. Being king over Israel was the last thing in the mind of a small shepherd boy. But after his anointing by Samuel, after the many years in waiting, God's promise was realised in his life. And and please note that David did not take the kingship of Israel. He actually received it from God. And the, the elders who came to him, they recognised him when they said in verse 2 and the Lord your God said to you you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler the people of his kingdom were the Lord's people the people were to follow this king because they belonged to God God Exalted his kinship for the sake of his people Israel. And and God did not anchor David's throne so that he could act like a king, but so that he could function as a servant and a shepherd towards God's people, towards God's flock. It was for their benefit and for their welfare. Kingship was not an end in itself but it was a means to an end. And I think even here in Australia we appreciate this in, in, in our political system which is called the Commonwealth where we have ministers, a minister, remember, is somebody who serves and then of course we have the, the prime minister who is the leader. So he's the prime servant. That is the whole notion, that is the whole ideal. Now obviously many times it doesn't work in practice, but that is the way that the system has been set up. Now we have had our fair share of political leaders who have overpromised and under-delivered. But in the church as well, we also need to be careful that we don't fall for for some of the problems that we find in the, in the political realm. And one of the problems there is that, uh, is what we tend to call hero worship. Hopefully we don't fall for Christian hero worship. We can become so enamored with certain kingdom servants that we forget that they are imperfect and will inevitably disappoint us. Even David, as we know, was far from a perfect king. Ultimately, ultimately, the kingdom is only safe in the hands of David's descendant who always does, always will do what pleases the Father. Of course, that doesn't mean that people will always do you know, what they willingly want to do as their leader wants them to do, as God calls them to do. Because obviously, many times, even the sheep don't want to follow the shepherd. And even the sheep of Israel didn't recognise, they didn't want to follow the shepherd, the ultimate shepherd that was sent to them. This is what we read. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Um, Just uh, a few days ago, one of our one of our dogs uh, gashed gashed her leg, and we had to take her to the to the vet a couple of times already. And one of the interesting things is that uh, even though it's been bandaged once, she keeps ripping it off been bad and itch again she keeps ripping it off and it's almost like i want to say i want to talk to the dog and the vet was trying to talk to the dog and says please don't do that because this is going to harm you we're trying to make you better this is what's going to bring you healing in some ways this is exactly what god is doing to us i'm your king i'm trying to do this for your benefit i'm trying to do this for your good and as jesus approached jerusalem The very city. He wept over it because he says, I've tried over and over again to bring you to me and you have refused. You keep ripping apart the bandages that will bring you healing. I wonder if we can learn from that and say, if God is trying to to deal with us, if He's showing His goodness and His kindness, if He's even, perhaps even disciplining us, let's accept it as coming from the Lord. Let's submit to him because he is a king who loved us. He is a king who gave his life for us to give us life both now and forevermore into eternity. May the Lord, the king who loved us enough, enough to die for us, may he find in us willing followers willing to follow the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.